I didn't think I'd get weepy. <laughs> wow. Well, we are one member larger. Cecilia Grace Toon was born on Monday morning at 2.14. She was uh, the daughter of, she's the daughter of Deb and uh, Cooper Toon. Six pounds, whopping six pounds, 4.2 ounces, 19 inches long. She's a monster. And she has the lungs of a longshoreman, uh, I can tell you. And I knew you'd probably want to see a couple of more pictures, so I have them for you. <laughs> Actually, that was going to be the joke, and then I saw pictures from Halloween last night, so I do have some more pictures. So you'll see that Deb is the warden, Cooper is the adult con, and then Cece, take a look, she's wearing, a, she said, I just did nine months on the inside. <laughs> I love it. I love the little hash marks on her wall there. So, oh gosh, and of course she's the most beautiful, most brilliant, most exceptional, most promising uh, baby that's ever been born. Um, Deb's parents are Brazilian, uh, they live in Brazil, they do not speak English, and they are not going to be able to get out of Brazil to see their new granddaughter for a long, long time, so I want to do my best to bring them uh, greetings uh, this morning. So, bom dia, Arleche e Claudio. Everdaji, Cecilia, e muito benita e preciosa, Deus te adonce. Soy, abençoe. There we go. I have no idea what it is. Ah! Deus abençoe. All of you grandparents understand the emotions that are actually kind of flooding over me right now. The minute I, uh, I held her, it was like nothing I'd ever felt in my life. And then yesterday I had my first finger grab. And I would have sat there for eight hours as long as she was willing. I would have held on forever. Um, and why? Because she's part of my family. She's part of me. And without knowing her, I love her. And uh, I will always love her. And there's nothing that she could do that would change that. And the great thing is that we in the Christian family ought to understand something about that. Because without having done anything to deserve it, we uh, have experienced the love of God, the grace of God the Father. And have been welcomed into his family. So this sermon series we're calling Our United State. Because I think it's important for us to remember that what it is that unites us as a Christian family, as Christian brothers and sisters, especially in a time of deep national division. Wednesday morning, we're going to wake up and half of this nation will be sad. Uh, or angry, or despairing, or convinced that the world is going to end uh, soon. And the other half will feel like their, their prayers have been answered, and the, the future is bright and hopeful. And we will, I think, continue to be a nation that seems hopelessly and angrily divided. And, and that's awful, actually. Here's what's even worse. I think the divisions also make their way into our Christian community, and even into our own church to some degree. I know from the emails that I've received over the last few weeks how passionately we hold differing views. And unfortunately, in a time when civility is non-existent, it's, uh, it's becoming harder and harder even for Christian siblings to hold differing views and still hold affection for one another, kindness toward one another, the compassion for one another. Last week at Alpha, two women discovered for the first time that God adores them 
And they received Jesus, and they became a part of his forever family. And it is a wonderful thing, and really actually quite an easy thing to receive the grace and the love of God. It can be a harder thing, however, for us to share that same love with each other. Here's the center aisle in our church, and on the, there are folks over here, you're on one side of the aisle, the other half of the church is on the other side of the aisle, and we know that expression, uh, on the other side of the aisle, but I don't know if that phrase has ever resonated more deeply than it does with us right now, those on the other side of the aisle. The Corinthian church was deeply divided, and divided, and divided including in their opinion of Paul, who was their founding pastor. And Paul is urging them in the Second Corinthians, the letter of Second Corinthians, to put those divisions behind them and to rekindle their affection for each other and for him, by the way. Paul, believe it or not, felt rejected by this church that he loved. And so we hear really a pretty raw, passionate appeal from the Apostle Paul when we get to Second Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 11 through 13, and that's our text for this morning. If you want to open your Bibles or open up your app to 2 Corinthians 6. But this is the text we're going to focus on. Paul writes, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. And in return, I speak as to children now, widen your heart's also. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll take these words and that you will put them to work within our hearts, that our hearts might be open, might be widened in ways that we cannot do in ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians is his most intimate, most vulnerable of all of the letters. He, he lays himself wide open. It is an, an attempt of his <clears throat> to be reconciled to this group of Christians that he loved. He spent 18 months with them. He planted this church. Most of the people in Corinth, he himself led to Jesus. But there reached a point where Paul felt like he was called to continue on in his missionary journey, and so he left them. And during the time he was traveling after having been there, he suffered some terrible persecution. We're not sure all that he's talking about, although some of it is probably referenced in the book of Acts, but he experienced terrible suffering along the way. And there were some jealous leaders back in Corinth who got wind of this, and they thought that Paul's suffering disqualified him from being uh, an apostle and the leader of their church. After all the teaching went, real Christian leaders don't ever suffer, right? And of course, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's awful. It's an awful theology. And so Paul, as he was languishing in his persecution, he was he, it was doubled in the pain of, of, of basically being of, uh, rejected by these opportunists in Corinth who were defaming him and, and seeking a, a power grab. And so this letter is Paul's rebuttal to their awful theology and to their power grab. And he, he makes the claim, listen, I have been called by the Lord. I've been called to be a suffering leader just as Jesus was a suffering Lord. 
And in this chapter, he begins to make the case for the ways that ought to prove to them the authenticity of his apostolic calling and the authenticity of his love for them. And it starts in verse 4. If you want to, you can take a look there. It's a long list. I'm not going to read all of it, but I do want to take a look at chunks. Paul starts off by saying, as servants, we commend ourselves in every way. In other words, he said, you take a look at every aspect of my life. I want you to take a look at it, and I'm going to list the ways that I believe prove to me, prove to you the genuineness of my affection for you, the genuineness of, the, of my apostolic call. And so he starts out in verse 4, he says, I've proven myself by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, that's a description of what he's been going through. Actually, at this point in this year, we understand a little more about, about riots and beatings, don't we, than we did perhaps a year ago. And I'll confess to you that after leading this church for the last eight months, I understand more about sleepless nights than I have for a long time. And, and Paul says, listen, I experienced all of these things, and I've endured them. My endurance under these awful circumstances ought to be one of the proofs to you of the authenticity of my call and my affection for you. But he doesn't stop there. Now he seems to shift gears, and he leads them in a different direction in verse 6. He says, I have also proven myself by purity, by knowledge, by patience and kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love. When you list when you hear him listing these things, it's almost like he's recounting, reciting uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit as we find it in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It's kind of an abbreviated version. And Paul is saying here, listen, my spirit-felt behavior, the way I'm behaving is also a further proof of the authenticity of my call and of my love for you. And yet he's not done. He now goes on in verse 7. He says, and I have proven myself by truthful speech. By the power of God, weapons of righteousness on the right hand on, on, for the left. This is Paul saying, listen, I've also been courageous. I've been a warrior for you. I've stood up for you, and I've stood up for the gospel. I am willing to do spiritual battle. Will those charlatans back in Corinth with you, are they willing to say the same thing? And then finally he closes in verse 9. He says, amid honor or dishonor, slander or praise... This is a different version, but I love this, this version. Even when we were treated as deceivers and imposters, we remained steadfast and true. In other words, Paul says, I, regardless of what people are saying about me, regardless of how people are slandering me, I want you to know I have been true. I have been steadfast to God, and I have been steadfast to you, my beloved Corinthians. In the face of suffering, in the face of rejection, I have endured, I have lived a spirit-filled, courageous life, and I have been a witness that has been steadfast for the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, I have done everything I can to be reconciled to you, to prove my devotion to God's calling, to prove my affection for you. What else can I do, he says. And he says the answer is nothing. Here's why I've taken some time with this. I want you to notice this. This is Paul talking, not talking, he's not talking to unbelievers here. This is Paul pleading with fellow Christians. 
We're not talking here about our relationship with the unbelieving world on the outside. We're talking here about restoring relationship within the body of Christ, the church. Jesus once said, by this will the world know that you are my disciples, that you what? Love one another. And this is Paul talking about that love. He says, I want to do everything I can to rekindle the affection that you Corinthians once had for me and for each other. An affection that has grown bitter and cold and suspicious. Any of you ever been in a church that was bitter and cold and suspicious? I'll bet some of you have been. And it is not fun. It is not life-giving. I dare say it is not the church. And so after this long list of proofs, of his love for them comes the punchline, verse 11, which we read earlier. Paul says, we have spoken freely to you. I've laid my guts out to you. I've laid my whole thing on the line here. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, he says, I want you to widen your hearts also. Paul pleads with them. He says, you have restricted your affections. And that word affections in the Greek is splogsnois. I want you all to say that word at home as well. Here we go. Splogsnois. It's a wonderful word. You know what splogsnois means literally? It means guts. It means bowels. It was used to mean spleen and kidney, entrails, your innards. And even the word splogsnois kind of sounds like guts. It's a gross-sounding word, but it was a popular expression at the time. You would say, I love you with all my guts. I love you with all my bowels, my spleen, my kidney. I love you with all my splogsnois. That's how they said it. But Paul says, you have restricted your splogsnois. Anyone here ever had a restricted splogsnois? I know you have, and it is not pleasant. It is certainly not something we would choose for ourselves, and it is certainly something we seek to deal with quickly, right? Do we? There, that's how we deal with a restricted splogs noise here. And Paul says, You have chosen to be relationally constipated. You have chosen to restrict your affections. You have decided that you're going to reject me and reject each other in spite of all I've done to prove my affection for you. And then Paul picks another body part to to continue his illustration. The heart. The heart. Now, this isn't the first time that we've encountered the heart in this letter, is it? A couple of weeks ago, we heard Paul rallying the Corinthians with these powerful words. We do not lose heart. Remember that? We do not lose heart. I heard this week from a Peninsula School Board member who worships with us. She heard this sermon, and she sent the link to every member of the school board. She said, we need this courage at this time in our lives. And it was Paul's clarion call to courage, to hang in there, and to trust God even in the face of hard times. And we continue to need to be reminded of that, don't we? We do not lose heart. That's what it means to be followers of Christ in the hard times. But Paul now takes that metaphor one step further. It isn't enough, he says, to not lose heart. Now, he says, we need to widen those hearts. You've got heart, now you need to widen your hearts. He said, our hearts are wide open to you. And he said, in return, widen your hearts also. 
It reminds me of the Grinch, right? The Grinch whose heart was three sizes too small. And this is what Paul's saying. Widen your hearts, Corinthians. Open up your hearts. He's saying the same thing to Gig Harborites. Now, I want us to hear this, Chapel Hill. We must widen our hearts toward each other. We must make room in our hearts towards each other. In a time of division, could there be a more important message for the body of Christ to heed? That all of us as believers, whichever side of the aisle we might be on, we must choose, we must decide, we must work to widen our hearts toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those with whom we might disagree on earthly, temporal matters, but with whom we have the single most important eternal quality in common. And that is that we are the adopted children of Almighty God. We must widen our hearts toward each other. What does that look like? In real terms, what, was it, what does that look like? I was thinking about that this week. What is, how do we do that? And then God gave me my own heart-widening experience right out of the blue. When I was doing youth ministry in Bakersfield, there was one young man that showed particular promise. He gave his life to Christ. He was devout. He was articulate. He was passionate and good-looking and charismatic. And I just knew that this young man was going to be a pastor someday. And indeed, he became a pastor. But in seminary, he turned sharply to the left. And over the years, in fact, he became one of the most ardent voices in our former denomination, advocating for, among other things, the ordination of gays and lesbians and for same-sex marriage. And this put us at odds because at the time, I was one of the ardent voices within our former denomination for maintaining biblical standards of ordination and of marriage. And so what had once been this close relationship was torn apart. In fact, at one point, he told me in a phone call that my comments were embarrassing to him. And that hurt deeply, to be called an embarrassment by your young protege. And to be honest, it was the last time we talked. I uh, came, in fact, to view him as, as the enemy, as the proponent of dangerous trends which ultimately caused us to leave that denomination. And so for years we had no contact. And candidly, I didn't want contact with him. And then this last week, of all weeks, I received word that his mom had died. And so I thought, what the heck? So I tracked him down, and I just sent him a brief note of condolence. And immediately, he responded back with gratitude and telling me, among other things, how much my ministry had meant to him. It was like the floodgates had kind of opened. And so we exchanged several emails back and forth. And at one point, I spoke of my regret over the division between us. He replied, well, I'm sure we're still divided politically and philosophically and theologically, but I'm happy to have been reconciled with you personally, Mark. And I wrote back, yes, you are obviously right. We are still divided in so many ways. But finding a way to have a relationship in spite of huge differences, perhaps that is the work of older men, I think. And if we as Christ followers can't figure out how to do it, What hope does this toxically divided country of ours have? My friend and I will never agree on 
many of our political and theological differences. We will never exchange pulpits. Our votes will always cancel one another out. But this week, God has taught me what it means to widen my heart toward a brother in Christ who is definitely on the other side of the aisle from me. And my friends, we all need to do this. When I held Cecilia this week for the first time, I experienced the, what I can only describe as almost a painful joy. It was a widening of my heart. It was a deep love that is almost indescribable until you experience it. And I remember as I sat there holding her, adoring her, remember, I remember thinking two things. First of all, I thought, when my son Cooper holds his daughter, it will be the first time that he has a clue of just how much I love him. And the second thing I thought is, this is just a taste of how my Heavenly Father loves me. It is through that heart-widening love that Jesus has shown to us that we receive the capacity to love others as we have been loved, even difficult others. So Wednesday morning, you can choose. You can choose angry, constipated relationships or wide hearts. Whether you win or lose Tuesday, Wednesday, you can choose the nature of your affection toward your siblings in Christ. Not in your own strength, because we don't have it, I don't think, but because the Holy Spirit lives in you. The one who reconciled you to God and can reconcile you to the rest of your church family even when they are completely wrong in how they voted. (laughs) Wednesday morning, Wednesday morning, let us begin to show the world what it means to live with wide hearts. If we, Jesus' followers, can't do it, who in the world can? Father, we thank you for your wide heart towards us, demonstrated to us perfectly and permanently in the gift of Christ. His death on the cross, which embraced not his not his fans, not his champions, but the enemies. We, his enemies, who killed him. That's the kind of love to which you call us. And if you can love us that much, surely then you can, through your Spirit, give us a love that reaches across the aisles, across political differences, and is affectionate and sweet and kind and compassionate, especially to the other members of our Christian family. God, this has been a time of tumult. And I pray, regardless of the outcome this week, and we ask that your hand would be upon all of that, I pray that we would be the ones who begin to sow a new seed of kindness, of community, of sweetness, of affection. Do that through us, Lord. Through your Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.